morning again. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Proverbs chapter one. As we begin a study of the book of Proverbs this summer. And let's do, I wanna do a little exercise here at the beginning, at the outset of this series. So if you have pen, paper, or you can grab you know, a connect card out of the pocket, that's fine. Or if you phone, if you wanna type uh, this out. I wanna do a little exercise here to think about this. And here's my question for you. I'm gonna give you a moment to think about it is what is an area of your life currently, right now, where you are in need of wisdom? Some, some part of life, some decision that has to be made, perhaps some relationship, some place where you recognize, like, I don't know what to do, and I need some instruction, I need some guidance. Think about that for a moment. I'm actually gonna be quiet and let you think. All right, pins down. I'm just kidding. No. Let me pray for you, and, uh, and let's prepare our hearts for the word of the Lord. So, Father, my friends have just written down or thought about something where they need your wisdom. And I pray that they would find that as we study the book of Proverbs, that you are imparting to them the very wisdom that they need, that it would land in their life with force and with grace, and that they would seize upon it and act accordingly. I pray for us as a church that we would grow in wisdom so we might glorify you. pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as we look at the book of Proverbs, Proverbs is a book that's all about wisdom and it's about foolishness. It's about what it looks like to live in the world underneath God. And that's kind of an, a, a phrase I want you to get used to, right? Living under God. What does it look like to live under the knowledge that God exists, that he's king, that he's creator, that he's redeemer through Jesus Christ? And Proverbs wants to impart to us wisdom and the great value of wisdom. And so we'll find that as we work through the book of Proverbs, that, that our authors are more interested in, in the practical day-to-days of life than they are of big concepts. Now, it's not to say that Proverbs does, isn't filled with really rich theology and ideas. It certainly is. It's just that the writers of Proverbs are much more interested in you and I knowing how to make day-to-day, day-to-day decisions in a way that recognizes the, the way God wants us to live. Does that make sense? So Proverbs is exceedingly practical. It's going to deal with all manner of subjects. So here's how we're going to approach the book over the course of this summer. Rather than just say, well, let's talk about chapter one, and then let's talk about chapter two, and then let's talk about chapter three, what we're going to do is identify, what we've done is identify some of the major things that Proverbs talks about, things like money, things like intimacy, things like marriage, things like parenting, right? Uh, things like how, do, how should our speech be? Like how should we talk? Uh, and a little spoiler alert, it's a lot about listening more than talking, what Proverbs has to say, right? And so we're going to identify these areas and what we're going to try and do each week as we come is say, what does the entire book of Proverbs have to say about this subject? What does the entire book of Proverbs have to say about this subject? And in that way, we'll see the main themes of the teaching in the book of Proverbs. So, and it's going to very much key us in on uh, some very practical wisdom. 
Now, that being said, let me not assume that at the, at the outset that you and I are just like uh, eager to get wisdom. I mean, I think there's times where, I mean, as, as a preacher, I think I want to believe that everybody wants to be wise, right? And I don't meet too many people that say they want to be foolish, but there's a difference between, there's a difference between uh, not wanting to be foolish and actually really wanting to be wise. There's a difference between those things. Listen to what Proverbs says in chapter 16, verse 16, about desiring wisdom. It says, how much better to get wisdom than what? Than gold. In other words, the, the greatest treasure they would have known in the world at that time, right? The, the most valuable thing that you could possess, more valuable than that thing, is wisdom. To get understanding, it says, is to be chosen rather than silver. The authors of Proverbs want you and I to want wisdom and to seek it diligently and to be eager for it. It made me think about when I was a kid. When I was 12 years old at Christmas, I wanted nothing other than the Lego castle set. That was what I wanted more than, have you guys had a Christmas or a a birthday or something where you like, you had one thing that you really, really wanted? So my Graham, she is a planner. And so every June, I mean, like she would start Christmas shopping in the summer. Okay. And so in June, uh, I I asked this question last time that the store best, did y'all have the store best? So we had the store best. Yeah, some of us who are old know this store and some of you are young don't know this store, right? And so she had the best catalog. And so we'd go to her house pretty regularly just to hang out, do the lawn, all that kind of stuff. And when we'd hang out, you know, in June would roll around she'd break out the best catalog and she'd say, here it is, circle what you want. And I, when I was 12, circled nothing other than the Lego castle set. I mean, my sister's over there circling everything under the sun, and I'm like, I want this. And I'm just going over it again and again. Like, can I get five markers to go over this? This is the thing. Get me, th- this is what I want more than I want anything else. The Lego castle set. So sure enough, Christmas comes. It's December. And Christmas at the Thompson house is awesome. It's really special. We sleep at Graham's house on the cots. Me, all the cousins, the sister. Uh, Graham's on the couch. We wake up early. We get the sugary cereal that we never get any other time of year. And I'm the first kid up. I still have these memories of the grandfather clock in the living room. You know, 6.30, that's when I was allowed to get up. Uh, And 6.30, I would start munching on my super golden crisp. Yeah, that's the good stuff, right? It's like, yeah, it's it's like diseases for children. That's what it is, just... Just drinking the sugar. So I was, you know, my super golden because I'm probably having my second bowl, right? And does everybody have that one uncle who like has to shower before you open presents? Don't be that guy. That guy, my uncle Austin, he didn't even have hair and somehow it took him an hour to get a shower. I don't know what was going on. And so we're waiting on Allison and finally he comes out and like, all right, it's time. We're opening presents. We all rush into the room and uh, we do stockings first. Do you guys do stockings first? You're wrong if you do it the other way stockings first. So we do stockings first. You know, it's the gum, it's the socks, it's the whatnot. We're like, yeah, it's awesome. Thank you. And then we've got our pile of presents. And I'm a little concerned because there's 10 presents and I just wanted one thing. And now I'm getting concerned that what has happened is that they have, they have lost focus. I'm concerned that they have lost focus. And so I start opening. And everyone I'm opening is the one I think, I start with the one I think looks most like a Lego castle set and I'm gonna work to the one that looks least like the Lego castle set. And the first one I open, and is it the Lego castle set? It's not the Lego castle set. It's some other lame thing that I don't even remember anymore. 
Then I open the second one, and it's not the Lego castle. And I open the third one, and I'm getting increasingly concerned. I get to gift number, I don't know how many there actually were, but let's say 10 for the sake of the story. We get to gift number nine, and I open it, and it is not the Lego castle set. And all we have left is the one thing that looks the least like the Lego castle set of all the gifts under the tree, and I start to cry. I'm not kidding because I'm a selfish 12-year-old. I, I start to cry and I'm trying to hold it in. I'm trying to do the, I know I'm supposed to be thankful, but all I can think is, really? No Lego castle set? And in some cruel twist of parenting thinking, my parents have disguised the Lego castle set so that it looks like it's not a Lego castle set. And it's the last one open and it is indeed the Lego castle set. And now I feel foolish because I've got tears coming down my face, but I've got the thing I want. Now they're tears of joy, not tears of sorrow. My guess is you've had a Christmas or some time where there was just one thing that you wanted, right? Just, just one thing. And maybe it's not even Christmas. Maybe it's not even you know, a birthday. It wasn't even a, a time of a gift. You just, there's moments in life, seasons of life, where you've said, I just, if, Lord, I just want this, this one thing. I just have this one thing. And what the writers of Proverbs are trying to tell us is the one thing that you should want more than the Lego castle set, more than silver and more than gold is you should want wisdom. Diligently seek wisdom. Long for wisdom. You should be in tears if someone said you cannot have wisdom. It's not under the tree for you. Want wisdom, more than silver, more than gold. That's what Proverbs wants to tell you and I. Want wisdom, seek it, go after it. Be a person who knows what it is to live in the world under God. Now, that begs the question, okay, like how do I get it? If I want wisdom, if that's the thing that, the, that Proverbs tell me I should want, then how do I get it? Well, fortunately, Proverbs has an answer for us. And the answer to the question, how do I get wisdom, begins in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Let's look at that together, where it says this. Proverbs 1, verse 7, we'll have it on the screen as well. We find this phrase, a theme for the entire book, the foundation setter. It says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So there we see the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In chapter nine, we see that same phrase repeated only. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the writers are using those terms interchangeably in this scenario. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now here's what the writers are saying to us. They are saying, if you want to be wise, the foundation of wisdom is the fear of God. The foundation of wisdom is the fear of God. Now, let me clarify there that when they say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, what they're not saying is that the fear of the Lord is like the first step in a long journey to becoming wise, like a horizontal pathway. They're not saying fear the Lord and then become wise, what they're saying is more something like this. The fear of the Lord is actually the foundation upon which all other wisdom is built. And without it, you cannot be wise. In other words, the writers of Proverbs are saying to us, if you want to be wise, you must first fear the Lord because the fear of the Lord is actually that upon which all wisdom is built. 
so that we can say it simply this way, if you don't fear the Lord, you cannot be wise. If you don't fear the Lord, you cannot be truly wise. Uh, A theologian put it this way, I found it helpful. He said, the fear of the Lord is to wisdom what the alphabet is to a book. The fear of the Lord is to wisdom what the alphabet is to a book. A book consists of words, right? Pages uh, and pages and pages of words, and those words consist of letters from the alphabet. So no book exists without the alphabet. In the same way, wisdom cannot exist without the fear of the Lord, because it is the very content, the foundation of what the fear of the Lord is. So let's try to answer three questions today. If we should want wisdom, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then we need to understand what the fear of the Lord is. So let's answer three questions. Number one, what is the fear of the Lord? It's a really misunderstood idea, and I'll try and clarify it for us. Biblically, what do we mean when we say the fear of the Lord? The second question is, uh, why does the fear of the Lord lead to wisdom? I wanna try and connect some dots for you so that you can understand just like why the scriptures are so adamant that this leads to this. And then the last question is, how do I fear the Lord? Because, I mean, how many times have we been in a sermon? I'm sure I've been the preacher of some of those sermons where you say, it's nice that you told me me a command, but you didn't tell me how to get there. Right, well, how do, how do I have that? If that's what I need, how do I have it? And so we're gonna try and answer those three questions. What is the fear of the Lord? Why does the fear of the Lord lead to becoming wise? And how do I become someone who fears the Lord? All right, everybody with me? Cool, all right, let's go. So the first question is, what does it mean to fear the Lord? And I already said, this is a misunderstood idea. You need to recognize that you can't understand the idea biblically of the fear of the Lord just simply by breaking that phrase into its component parts. You cannot just say, I know what fear is and I know who the Lord is, so I know what it means to fear the Lord. Because when the writers of Proverbs in particular use this phrase, they're using it as one collective idea and it's a little different in what it what it's conveying conveying than just simply the idea of fear. You know what it is to fear something, yes? Yeah, you've felt fear. It's an emotion that we all experience at different points, right? So, but what you experience in terms of the fear you feel is something different than what the writers of Proverbs mean when they command you to fear the Lord so that you might become wise. So that's the first thing we have to understand. The second thing I want you to see is that there are two parts to a definition of fearing the Lord, two types of fearing, fearing the Lord. Actually, I should say there's three types, and I'll come to that third type, but I want you to think mainly about two parts of fearing the Lord. When the writers of Proverbs say, fear the Lord, it's the beginning of wisdom, there's an emotional component to that. In other words, something that is somewhat reactive. It's felt, right, rather than reasoned. It's experienced. The second side of that in addition to the emotional, is that there's a, a, there's a choice side to it, what we would call a volitional component. It means a choice of the will, a determination. That there, there's a component of that being the fear of the Lord. So let's talk about the emotional side, and then let's talk about the volitional side, or the, the side that is our will. So the first thing that we need to understand is when the writers of Proverbs talk about the fear of the Lord, one thing they have in mind is that there is an emotional response that people feel to being in the presence of a God who is so different than we are, so majestic, so grand, so overwhelmingly powerful that those who encounter him can't help but experience an emotional response to that that involves awe, reverence, and, and to be honest, trembling. We see that again and again in the scriptures. Now, I'm gonna argue in a moment that trembling is not related to fear that he's going to, to strike us down. 
It's simply the result of the fact that he is so big and so other and so holy and so pure and we are not to imagine that we would ever enter the presence of a being so other from us without some degree of trembling just at the simple otherness of that being from us is probably a mark of foolishness. And so when the writers of Proverbs talk about fear of the Lord and they're talking about this emotional side of it, and honestly, all throughout Scripture, not just in Proverbs, there is an emotional trembling awe and reverence component to that. Let me show you what I mean. In Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, I think the best example, one of the best examples in scripture with the disciples is there's this moment called the transfiguration of Jesus. And if you're not familiar with that, Jesus in his earthly ministry had this moment. It's this really unique moment in his earthly ministry where he goes up to pray on a mountain and he brings three disciples with him, James and John and Peter. And when they, when they go up with him, in the midst of praying and being together, God causes Jesus to shine in the glory that, that he possesses, that he possessed through all eternity past before cloaking that in humanity and that which he, that which he would possess after his resurrection. And so he, he sh- it's, it's as if he shines the true light of, of Jesus' glory onto Jesus in this moment of transfiguration so that the disciples are, are like truly seeing Jesus in his splendor for the first time. And Peter, God bless him, he's so bold. But sometimes he just says stuff. Let's build some, let's build some altars here. And the Lord, I think, you know, you just get the sense the Lord goes, okay, Peter, that's nice, just be quiet now. Because this is what then we find, and Peter's speaking, and then we find this verse, Luke chapter nine, verse 34, it says this. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. So, you know, when we see a cloud overshadowing, that's the very presence of God now. And the transfigured Jesus is there, and it says, and they were what? They were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, when Luke is saying they were afraid, he's not saying they made a choice about fearing the Lord there, is he? He's talking about emotion that they experienced, and they would have experienced simply because they entered into the presence of God. Whether they wanted to feel it or not, they were entering the presence of the holiness of God surrounded by the cloud, and they felt what? Afraid. Trembling. When Philippians chapter 2 says, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling, and then it says, this is like the greatest little juxtaposition, because then it says, for it is God who works in you, It is God who works. In other words, because God is drawn near and works in you to fulfill and to bring about the fulfillment of your salvation, you should fear and tremble because God has drawn near to work in you. There's an emotional component to what it means to have the fear of the Lord. Now, Proverbs more often talks about the second type or second part of fearing the Lord. It's less often referring to those Luke 9 uh, type moments. More often, it's referring to the choice of the will that it is to fear the Lord. And this is where I think a lot of people uh, have some misunderstanding when it comes to when the Bible says fear the Lord, what does it mean? Because we don't think of fear, we think of fear as as an emotion, we don't think of it as a choice. 
But when Proverbs talks about the fear of the Lord, it is often talking about it as a choice that we make. Let me show you what I mean. So look with me. Uh, we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 29 through 31. And let me say, before we look at, uh, at three texts here in Proverbs, let me say that when it talks about, when Proverbs talks about fear as a choice, it's going to talk about as a choice to do two things. To, number one, to humble yourself before the Lord. And number two, to turn away from evil. When Proverbs says, fear the Lord, that's what it means. Humble yourself and turn away from evil. Look at Proverbs chapter one, verse 29 through 31. It says this. It says, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despise all of my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. So that's God speaking there in those verses. And I want you to notice a couple things. The first thing is, did you notice that he said they did not choose the fear of the Lord? Did you catch that? So he's very clearly painting the fear of the Lord as what? As a choice that we make. It's something to be chosen. So because they didn't choose the fear of the Lord, then the result of that is that they are going to experience or encounter or eat the fruit of their own devices, of their own choices. Now this is another major thing in Proverbs that you're gonna see again and again. Certainly, Proverbs understands that God disciplines and he blesses and he moves and performs miracles. It, it certainly does not deny that, but Proverbs is more interested with the natural result of our choices. And so again and again, what we're gonna find is that Proverbs recognizes that God works through simply allowing us to experience both the blessing of wise choices and the consequences of foolish choices. And Proverbs is gonna again and again just paint the picture of the wise person thrives and flourishes and the foolish person bears or reaps the consequences of their foolishness. And they're not painting the pictures of God directly is doing that. They're just saying, this is how God has designed the world to work. He's designed it so that wisdom begets blessing and foolishness begets consequences. And so that's another major thing we see here. But where does the consequence come from in verse 29? Look back with me again. What was it that they did to not choose the fear of the Lord? It says, because they hated knowledge and would have none of my counsel. In other words, he says after. They didn't choose the fear of the Lord, and when they have none of my counsel. In other words, they were arrogant. They weren't what? Humble. Now look at Proverbs chapter three, verse seven and eight. It says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So again, there, what do we see? Making wise choices because you fear the Lord leads to refreshment. It leads to goodness. It's, it's great for you to have wisdom and fear the Lord. And what did he say? Fear the Lord, turn away from what, church? Turn away from evil. He's defining it for us. He's telling us what the fear of the Lord is. It's not meant to be mysterious. It's simple and straightforward. Look again now at Proverbs chapter eight, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So here again, there's 15 occurrences of this phrase, the fear of the Lord, and all of them sound very similar to the three that I just read to you. All of them are very similar to this idea where he's saying to us, look, the fear of the Lord has a component that is a choice that you make. 
And the choice that you must make if you want to say, oh, I, I actually fear the Lord, is that you must make the choice to humble yourself before God and turn away from evil. That those are first order type choices before you ever are going to be able to practice wisdom in your marriage or in your parenting or in your work. Like in any specific situation where I know I'm going to need wisdom about how I should speak or not speak, in order to have that, I first have to make this choice. And it is to live life with the disposition of choosing to humble myself before God and to turn away from evil. Maybe you can think about it this way. It's the simple choice to say, God is God and I am not. God is God and I am not. And whatever he says is right is right. And whatever he says is wrong is wrong. Those are the choices. Those are the first order choices that we make. And upon those choices, because they are the fear of the Lord, upon those choices, wisdom gets built. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Everybody with me? Follow me? Okay, so that's the question, what is the fear of the Lord? Now, let's, let's tackle this one real quick as a, as a piece to this first question. Because very probably, you might ask, no, help me out here, Trent, because I have read a lot in the Bible that it says to fear not. And I've also, I remember, I seem to remember 1 John chapter 4, 18, saying the fear of the Lord or perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. So isn't there, a, aren't I told not to fear the Lord? Isn't that maybe just an Old Testament thing? And now that Jesus has come, I am no longer to fear the Lord. And what we learn from seeing some references to fear in the scripture is that there is indeed a type of fear. It's the third type that I was referring to. There's a type of fear that we should not experience. And there's a type of fear that we should experience. Now, I've just tried to explain to you the type of fear that leads to wisdom that we're supposed to have. Both the emotional response to the grandness and otherness of God that is awe and reverence and trembling, and also the type of fear that is the choice that we make with our wills to say, I will choose to turn away from evil and I will choose to humble myself before God. Those are fears that we should experience, right, church? So when 1 John 4, 18 talks to us about perfect love casts out fear, so what is the type of fear we're not supposed to experience? Well, let's look at it together because it's the phrase right after that one that's instructive to us about the kind of fear we shouldn't experience. So 1 John chapter 4 verse 18 and love is one of those major themes for John. He just he just loves to talk about love, uh, which is good. Gospel of John, the letters of John in chapter 4 verse 18. He says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So there's, there's our key phrase. Fear has to do with punishment. He's cluing us in there about the type of fear he's talking about that we should not experience if we are in Christ Jesus. The type of fear he's saying you should not experience is fear that God's wrath is going to fall upon you. Fear that God will punish you for your sin. Because if you are in Christ Jesus, he has been punished for your sin and you will not be. He has protected you, sheltered you, and shielded you. And you and I are not, if you're a follower of Jesus, hear me now, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are not to walk through life with a dread that God's punishment for sin is going to fall upon you because that has been taken from you. That is not the fear we experience. That's different than 
having a visceral response to the bigness of God. Do you see the difference? I can go into the presence of God and tremble because he is so other and not have that be related to the fact that you, you are now going to strike me down for my sin. It's just purely the reaction to his grandness and his bigness. And I can choose to say, oh, I will turn away from evil and I will humble myself before the Lord. I can choose that type of fear and have it not be related or even motivated by the fear that he might punish me if I don't do those things. Because that punishment has been taken. I heard a pastor say it this way and I found it really helpful. Imagine, uh, and I, I want you to hear this too, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord can actually become uh, a, a thing you delight in and enjoy. And do you know how I know that? Because we're told that Jesus delighted in the fear of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 11, talking about Jesus, hundreds of years before he ever lived, prophecy about him, and it said this, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Here's the way that might help you to think about this. I've heard this elsewhere and I found it helpful. Imagine hiking in the biggest, most intimidating mountains you could ever imagine, the Himalayas. And you are thousands of feet away from any base camp. You are in the midst of the grandest mountains, the biggest mountains you've ever seen. And all of a sudden on the horizon, a storm starts to come. And it is the biggest storm you've ever seen. And the clouds are foreboding and they are scary. They are frightening. And you know those clouds carry the capacity to kill you because you are exposed. You are in a dangerous place. And you need shelter. And all of a sudden you look right before the storm gets there and you see a cave, a cave right in the middle of one of the mountains. And you race for it and right as you get there the thunder breaks and the rain begins to come and the wind howls at a fierce level and you've never seen anything like it and you know that if you were stuck outside on that mountain it would surely be your end but now that you've entered into the safe refuge of the cave and you have a secure place to sit in the storm the storm all of a sudden becomes beautiful the storm all of a sudden becomes a delight and a joy have you ever sat and enjoyed a good storm a storm that if you knew you were outside underneath the elements, you wouldn't enjoy very much. In fact, it might cause great fear in you. But when you have the right shelter, when you have the right shelter, it takes away the fear that that's going to cause your death. And it fills you with awe and wonder. And the fear of the Lord becomes your delight. When you are in Christ, you have a perfect shelter from the storm of God's wrath. You need no other shelter and you need never fear the wrath of God, the storm of his wrath falling on you. That fear is done away with. It has been banished and cast out by the perfect love of God in Christ Jesus. And now, when you're in him, the fear of the Lord can become your delight as the fear of the Lord was the delight of Jesus when he lived on the earth. 
So let's turn then to the second question. The first question was, what is the fear of the Lord? Hopefully we've got our minds around that. Now let's talk about the second question, which is why does fearing God lead to being wise? And I'm just gonna tackle this. There's two answers to this. I'm sure there's more thoughts we could give. I'm just gonna give you two answers to it. Why does fearing God lead to being wise? Well, the first answer is this. Because wisdom is essentially living in such a way that I am best able to thrive given the nature of the world and the trajectory of the world. Living in such a way that I'm best able to thrive given what the actual like, design of the world is, the nature of it, and the trajectory of the world, where history is going. Now, who has determined both the design of the creation that we live in and the trajectory of that creation? Who holds human history in his hands? God does. And so, in order to be truly wise, what do I need to do? I need to align the way I live with both the direction God is taking history and the way he has designed the world in which I live to operate and to work. So at a very simple level, just very logically, right, it makes sense to say that that the fear of the Lord, rightly orienting myself towards the Lord, making the choice to say, I will humble myself before you, to say, you're God and I'm not, and turn away from evil. Anything you say is bad, I'll say it's bad, and I'll turn away from it. When I do those things as a first order priority, I'm rightly oriented towards God, and what that does is, it causes me to, it causes me to say, I am choosing to live according to the design of the one who designed this whole thing, and I'm living in light of the trajectory of the direction he's taking this whole thing. So just at a very simple level, the reason the fear of the Lord produces wisdom is because it rightly orients us towards him. And he's the one who both designed and determines direction. You with me? Does that make sense? All right, awesome. So that's the first answer. Uh, It's not overly complex. I think about it this way. When I was in college, uh, I I had to do a degree audit at the end of college, you know, where you've got all the classes you had to take in order to get this four-year degree. And I was pretty diligent about making sure that I checked in with my academic advisor and that I was on the right track and I was taking all the right classes. But I had this sudden moment of fear as I was going in. I was supposed to graduate like a week later and I was going in I was thinking, what if I missed a class? Like what if there's something that I didn't do and I'm gonna walk in she's gonna go, oh, you know what? We forgot this one, sorry. You're out of luck. That would have been, I was like, no, please don't let that be the case, right? In order to graduate, what did I have to do? I had to follow the design and the trajectory of the degree that they gave, that they had prescribed. Like if I wanted this degree, I had to say, I'm gonna take these classes and sometimes I'm gonna take them in this order because that's how you get to graduation. It's not, that's not unlike what God's wisdom is like. We we become wise when we understand like, God, you have a design, you have a trajectory. If I want the degree that is wisdom, then I have to follow that design and follow that trajectory. Thankfully, I did graduate, I have a degree. I did take all the classes. So I was thankful for that, right? Now the second answer to the question is a little bit more straightforward. That, if the first one's kind of theoretical, the second answer to like why does the fear of the Lord lead to wisdom, it's, it's just simply this, is because when I say I'm gonna choose the fear of the Lord, I'm just taking a posture before the Lord that says I'm ready to receive whatever wisdom you have for me in all these other areas, like downstream, right? So the fear of the Lord is the first choice we make. And we say, I will choose to humble myself and turn away from evil. And when I do that, what I do is I just essentially do this before God. I open my hands. And now when I get over here and I need to make a choice about my marriage or about my work or about my parenting or where I go to school, whatever, I just need wisdom. Whatever that thing is you wrote down. 
I need wisdom. What you've done by choosing the fear of the Lord is you've chosen to say, my hands are open. So you can imagine like this. If you had a ball out there and I wanted that ball, right? And I said, hey, I need the ball. If I, if I hold my hands like this, I'm gonna probably catch the ball. But when I choose not to fear the Lord, what I'm doing is I'm essentially going like this. And I'm going, throw me the ball. Throw it to me. That's not gonna work. I'm not gonna catch the ball, right? I might get lucky, maybe. But more likely than not, it's gonna hit me in the face. Right, because what I've said is, I'm not, I actually, by not choosing the fear of the Lord, I've closed my fists and I've said, I don't actually have a posture that I'm ready to receive any wisdom for you about whatever that thing is you wrote down. So when you choose the fear of the Lord, you've chosen to open your hands. And that's why the fear of the Lord leads to wisdom. Because you've simply said, I, I now have a posture that I can catch the ball when you throw it to me. So let's answer that third question then, which is really kind of our application how do we grow in the fear of the Lord? How do we become a person who fears the Lord? And I'm just gonna give you a few thoughts here. The first, first thought I would give you is this. Don't allow your view of God to be lowered by false theology or human-centered thinking. Don't allow any, any theology that smacks of raising up the value of people and at the same time lowering the value of God is to be rejected. Reject any theology that does not raise God on high as supreme and sovereign and good and perfect. Reject any theology. Because here's the thing. is We said that a part of fearing the Lord is that emotional response to the bigness and otherness of God. Well, if you lower God in your thinking, you will have less opportunity to experience his bigness and otherness. And so that piece of fearing the Lord that leads to wisdom, which is my simple trembling and reverence and awe in the fear of the Lord, Right, that as we would gather here for worship together, there should be that right reverence and awe that we've come into the presence together of a holy God to worship him. There's a, there's a right degree of trembling in entering into that. So that's the first thing I would say. The second would be this is I love that Proverbs is what it's really gonna do is it's gonna try and again and again show you the benefits of wisdom. It's just throughout the whole book, it's just gonna try and say, if, you, if you're wise, it's gonna go well. And if you're foolish, it's not. And so just seeing, like don't be afraid of, of taking the benefit God has given you there. What he's trying to motivate you with through the book of Proverbs is to say, oh, I want you to be wise, so I'm gonna tell you all the good things that happen when you're wise. And I'm gonna tell you all the bad things that happen when you're foolish. So just cling to the, the promises of what happens for the wise person and want them. Want, God is saying, want the benefits of wisdom. So see those benefits and go after them. Want the benefits of being wise and want to avoid the consequences of being foolish. Fair enough? So that's another way that we become someone who fears the Lord is by seeing the benefits and seeing the consequences of not fearing the Lord. Here's one you definitely came to church for today. It's genius. Get ready for it. Pray for humility. Just pray. I don't know any other way to become humble other than to say, God, make me humble. Just pray for humility again and again. And don't stop because pride rears its ugly head all the time, doesn't it? Just all the time. So pray and pray again and pray again. Lord, make me humble. 
Because again, what is the fear of the Lord? Humility and turning away from evil, right? The next thing, how do I become someone who fears the Lord? Trust that everything his word says, his revealed written word says is right is right. Everything his revealed written word says is wrong is wrong, regardless of what the world tells you about that. Regardless of what the world says about your value system of right and wrong, choose in advance to say, if the word of God says it's right, then it's right. And if the word of God says it's wrong, then it's wrong. And it really doesn't matter what anybody else says about that or if they think that's backwards thinking. It doesn't matter. If you want to fear the Lord, determine that. And the last I'll say is this. There is a fear of the Lord that you should feel if you are not in Christ. And it's the type of fear I said that we don't need to fear have if we are in him, the fear of his wrath and punishment. I would encourage you that one way to fear the Lord is to choose to follow Jesus. And I'll tell you why, to have the right kind of the fear of the Lord. Because if you are not in Christ, it's not a popular concept to proclaim, but the scriptures say that his wrath is aimed at you. And it also tells us that there is a shelter made available to you for that wrath. You do not have to be subject to the storm of God's wrath. He has provided a, a refuge in the storm for you in his son. And I know that the question that often gets asked is, why would a loving God allow his wrath to be poured out on people he made? And friends, I just wanna tell you, that's the wrong question. Can I offer it to you, the right question? The right question is, how could God's love be so great that he would choose to pour out his wrath on his son rather than on me? Because to say, how could you allow your wrath to fall on me when he has provided a shelter for you and that shelter is his son seems to me to be missing the great work of God. He has made for you a shelter. You don't have to be incredibly intelligent or smart or really strong or have a lot of money or prestige or power. You simply have to come. You simply have to just enter into the shelter. Saying, I need, I need the shelter that only Jesus can provide. And there is no other shelter. That's the thing. There, there is no other shelter. But why would we want one when God's, God's son is the shelter? Why look for some other shelter when the sun has been provided, what better shelter could there be? And here's the thing. If you will choose to come into the shelter of Jesus Christ from the wrath of God, what you will find is the fear of God that is the fear of his wrath and punishment, will, what will happen is exactly what First John chapter 4, verse 18 said. You will no longer have that kind of fear because you have been spared the wrath of God once and for all. But now you will have the right kind of the fear of the Lord. You'll have the fear of the Lord that says, oh, you are God and I am not. And the kind of the fear of God that says, I will turn away from evil. And you will have awe and reverence and trembling at the otherness of God, even while knowing that his wrath will not fall upon you. You will trade the, wrath of, you will trade the fear of the wrath of God for the fear of God that leads to wisdom. And I would urge you to come and have it. Let's pray together. So Lord Jesus, you are a shelter.
a great, sufficient, awe-inspiring shelter. And we love you. And I would pray now, Lord, we know that when you draw people to yourself, that's your work. No, no preacher's words do that. And we would ask for any here today who have not chosen to take shelter in you, Jesus, that Holy Spirit, you would come now and you would prompt them to, to come and receive the shelter of Jesus from the wrath of God by simply saying, I believe. I need him and I believe. Crucified for my sins, raised from the dead to defeat death, reigning forever at the right hand of the Father. pray that you come and do that, Holy Spirit. We pray for those of us who are in you, Christ, that you would give us the fear of the Lord, that we might become wise. Now receive our praises as a response to you, which is, which is our way of saying to you that we indeed want to learn to fear you, and we want to be wise. We pray it in Jesus' name.